for most of the Bloodlines annuals, we've seen the alien parasites act in a very similar fashion to vampires. Lots of seduction, mind games, that sort of thing. Angon is a bit less subtle than that. She's walking the streets of Gotham City. She sees a man she wants to suck. She just knocks him over, transforms into a giant red monster, and fires her mouth tendril like a grappling hook as a fellow's running away from her and snags him by the back of the neck, drags him off into an alley and drains his juices. Gotham City's finest, like Commissioner Gordon and Harvey Bullock, are looking into these murders without any clear motive. There's no robberies, but their hands are also full dealing with Bane, who is still at large in the city. It's a good thing Batman's back after a brief disappearance. Gordon meets with Batman to make sure that he's on the alien case and notes that his style is a bit more flamboyant than he used to be, but he chalks that up to whatever happened to him during his departure. Batman is tooling around town using a grappling hook that's mounted to his left wrist. He happens upon Angon threatening to kill a mother and her young child. The Cape Crusader tries a direct approach and is batted aside as though he were nothing. Can't afford to think or hesitate. Got to let the system, my hidden training, take over. That lot of good that did him. Batman nearly died and only escaped by literally running away from the creature. Gone. My first real test and I failed. I ran and now I've got to go back to Gordon. Use that hoarse voice Boost puts on. Hope I'm convincing him that it's the same Batman. The real Batman. The Dark Knight detective warns Commissioner Gordon that Gotham PD needs to stay as far away from this alien creature as possible. That he himself is struggling to find a way of overcoming the creature where the GCPD would just be lambs to the slaughter. Gotham City's elite tactical squad are at the firing range when they get the word that all local police are to stay away from these creatures should they be sighted and only focus on getting innocents away from them. These top cops don't like hearing that they can't do their job. The one particularly nasty hard case, McCain, knows that that vigilante back creep didn't do any real wonders against Bane. The squad continues to grouse as they go into the locker room. McCain doesn't like how quiet Meow's been about things. Hey, don't start up again, McCain. His name's Mao. Shut up, Jukes. I'm talking to Meow. Well, Meow, you've been awful quiet as usual. So what's your feeling? Same as yours. Sucks. But that's all you've got to say? Look, McCain, I hate rules and regs as much as you do. In fact, I wouldn't mind being a vigilante myself. Let it all hang out. But we are officers of the law. So once again, you ain't with the rest of us. Just like with the weekly pad. You always got to be the one who's different, huh, Chop Suey? You want to eat some Chop Suey, McCain? Out in the alley? What are you going to do, Meow? Psych me out with the fortune cookie riddles or maybe kung fu me to death? You can find out, McCain, in the alley. Let him be the odd man out. He always is. But the rest of us are agreed, right? And anyone who gets in the way of us stopping this perp just might become another casualty. Back in the Batcave, an unmasked Batman looks a bit different. He's got blonde hair with a middle part, and he's wearing round John Lennon-style eyeglasses. Meanwhile, Mal walks into his apartment with a pizza. His walls are adorned with movie posters featuring giant era James Dean, Mr. Spock and the Enterprise, and Bruce Lee in Fists of Fury. He thinks to himself, Maybe I should just quit the force. Wash McCain's garbage right out of my hair. Go someplace and meditate in a zen rock garden by a pool with happy, fat koi fish. Eat stir fry and fortune cookies. Keep my mouth shut and remain humble while doing kung fu training 10 hours a day. Buy a coolie hat. Nah, screw that. I'm more American than McCain will ever be. Angon is spotted at an import warehouse and the tactical squad is called in. Batman is patrolling town in his Batmobile and catches the same alert. The tactical squad ignores their orders and directly confront the giant bloodlines parasite. They don't do quite as well as the Colonial Marines when they first engage the aliens. Within moments, the entire squad 
bodies lying in pools of blood, ripped to pieces. Ten men total were down. Kelvin Mao was the only survivor. And he was also the one man who was all alone. No wife, no parents, nobody to notify like the other nine. At a local bar, some sleaze tries to pick up Angon. He says he likes a woman with a sharp tongue. He's taking on more than he bargained for. Back at the hospital, Kelvin Mao is now in a body cast. Except it isn't. It's a hard red shell that is manifested around his body. His close-cropped hair has grown out into a lengthy dark mane. Sharp protuberances jet out on either side of his chin. Shortly after he was discovered, lights flicker and he's gone. Initially thought to have had a broken back, not only has Mao completely recovered, but now he's leaping across rooftops in the rain. I feel strong enough to... What in the... Something sliding down over my eyes. This is crazy. Everything's all green and I can see perfectly in the dark. Unreal. Some kind of membranes over my eyes, like built-in night vision, triggered automatically by light conditions. And I'm definitely faster now. Quicker. More agile. Feel like a sure-footed beast. No way I can fall or... Ah! Now I've been running naked on a ledge, covered only by his red, segmented, insectoid body armor. That didn't stop him from being struck by lightning and falling many stories down to the ground. He's dead but he recovers without a single broken bone, not even a twinge of pain. Back in his apartment, Mao actually tries to inflict damage upon himself, stabbing his forearm with a fork, a knife, a hatchet. That doctor wasn't crazy, or even kidding. This isn't a brace or a cast, but it is my new skin, or carapace. All of that time playing computer games and watching Star Trek. Now I look like something out of both. Mama's little Mao has definitely gone through some changes. And I'd better get out of here before they come looking for the armored guinea pig who escaped. No time for poking, prodding, probing, or processing. Now there's a monster's clock to clean. But where can I? Wait a minute. Old Jake once claimed there was an abandoned subway terminus under his shop where he stashed cars from a defunct line. And the police access code spells bingo. It's sealed up but still there. Mal makes his way to a police inventory locker where he steals 50 pounds of plastic explosive. He uses it to access the abandoned tunnels. Next, Mal steals some heavy weapons from another police inventory. He's decided to quit the force, but not before he avenges eight good men and McCain too. Batman continues his hunt. He hates this distraction when he should be focusing on Bane. He also questions whether or not it was the right idea to push Robin out. Maybe he's just too new. Maybe he needs that help. Maybe he's just not good enough for this job. Mal spends as much time as he can afford modifying his weapons, making them powerful and enough to hopefully stop this monster, but he knows, even with his new powers, that he's not going to be enough to get the job done. He makes his way to the bat signal, which he activates. Gordon notices and finds Mal, who explains that he wants an introduction to the Batman. The Dark Knight arrives, expecting that Gordon wants to meet him, but actually, Gordon is just facilitating an introduction to Ballistic. Armed and dangerous. Melodramatic, anyway. Like you're not? Ballistic still doesn't care for Batman because of his pride as a former police officer, but he makes it clear that he knows he needs all the help he can get to stop this monster. And an uneasy alliance is formed. Mao's still a young man, but he's no kid. 19 commendations, interforce boxing and martial arts champion, wounded seven times in the line of duty, including a recent miraculous recovery from seeming death. Ballistic sets up a trap house loaded with firepower. Some are Republican. Sue me. Here, you drive. I ride shotgun. And every other kind of gun. Not quite, but I'm working on it. Batman Middle Ballistic arrive at Angon's latest rampage and manage to lure the creature onto their jeep. Batman only drives, while Ballistic uses his mini mini guns to keep Angon distracted as they drive up to a remote house on a cliff. The pair lure the creature inside and then blow out the floor. This buys them some time as they work their way up to the roof, but Ballistic knows that the creature's coming. Batman can't hear a thing, 
but hearing is another sense that has been heightened by Ballistic's change. Batman seems very impressed with all of Ballistic's weapons, and that impression may come into play later on. But that's a tale for another time. Ballistic's arsenal gets winnowed down to a sword, and eventually Angon just straight up bites into the fellow. However, the new Exo armor is up to that particular challenge. Ballistic is still trapped, at least until Batman manages to drive a foreboard into the eye of Angon. You decimated my team before turning me into something like you. Bad moves, both of them. Ultimately, Batman and Ballistic leap into the ocean as the entire house is blown to smithereens by all that plastic explosive. Angon isn't destroyed, but apparently the tide takes her out of town for a little while. Ballistic takes his new circumstances in stride. He recognizes there's probably going to be a downside to having an insectoid carapace around his body, but he's still grateful to have it and grateful for what it affords him. You're not jazzed, huh? Let's check out my blood pumping. In fact, without my team now, maybe I should go into your line of work, the loan operator business. Of course, I'd have to charge for my services. Grenades don't grow on trees. And there's all that new gear I've got in mind. Vibrable blades with battery packs for delivering electric shocks into the wounds, throwing stars with built-in homing devices, maybe some nice exit, maybe even better than my years. Ballistic was written by Doug Minch and drawn by Eduardo Barreto. Ballistic was created by Minch and Michael Manley. Back in 1985, Coleco put out a line of action figures called Sectors that were like Master of the Universe, but more civilized looking. This was despite the fact that the Sectors were all part bug, with antenna, segmented eyes, and most importantly for our subject matter, or body armor that resembled the exoskeleton of some insects. I always thought the Sectors were extremely cool looking and well made, but they were extra pricey and didn't last long on the market. Ballistic was basically a less civilized looking Sector, and to my mind, that's his primary appeal. As a noted bleeding heart liberal, my other consideration is his being a rare minority hero in the sea of mayonnaise that is DC Comics. Ironic, considering that as a gun-loving right-winger, Ballistic would probably sneer at my equal opportunity concerns. Actually, come to think of it, overtly partisan superheroes are pretty uncommon at the big two companies as well, so check two boxes. Unlike Nightblade, Kelvin Mao's Asian heritage is much less ambiguous. The surname is Chinese, but Wikipedia states he's Korean-American, and the story makes it explicit Ballistic places the emphasis on American. I'll mostly follow his lead. Because I wasn't particularly wowed by the story, nor did I especially dislike it, I have to keep reminding myself that it was written by Doug Minch, because it reads more like one of Chuck Dixon's Punisher scripts, and was drawn by a sometime Dixon collaborator. For the most part, Ballistic was just another of the legions of 90s superhumans who were more interested in heavy arms and uniforms with lots of utility pouches than fantastic abilities and daring do. Since most of these tough guys were functionally invulnerable and effectively superhuman anyway, Ballistic just had an extra crunchy crimson layer of belief support. However, it doesn't extend trademark protection, since Mark Silvestri created his own character named Ballistic for the team book Cyberforce a year before DC's. And Sylvester spun her off into a solo miniseries that introduced fanboys to the artistic stylings of the late Michael Turner. While I tend to root for Kelvin Mao more due to my personal interests, Sylvester's invested a lot more in his ballistic than DC did theirs. Batman Nightcast, a thrilling new podcast from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Hosted by Ryan Daly and Chris Franklin, Nightcast chronicles the Cape Crusaders' adventures in Batman and Detective Comics after Crisis on Infinite Earths. Highlights from this legendary era include Batman number 400, Legends, Mike Barr and Alan Davis, Batman Year One, Batman Year Two, Max Allen Collins, Ugh. Um, the new Jason Todd, Ugh. Millennium? You're not doing this right. Let me take over. Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle. Alan Grant from Jurassic Park? Did you hear me say Norm freaking Brayfogle? Oh, yeah. Son of the Demon. The Killing Joke. A Death in the Family. Batman Year 3. A Lonely Place of Dying. 
Alan Grant, Alan Davis, Max Allen Counts. Why are there so many people named Alan from this era of Batman? The rise of Tim Drake. Legends of the Dark Knight. And that's just up until 1989. Did anything exciting happen with Batman after that? You'll have to tune in to find out. Batman Nightcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find it on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Oh, we forgot to mention your favorite issue, When Batman Fires Dick Grayson. You want to find another co-host? Azrael was an angel of punishment. He stood in a penthouse apartment in a suit of medieval armor. He wielded a sword that was ablaze. Leha was unimpressed. The portly middle-aged man sat smugly in his chair, dressed only in a loose bathrobe, smoking a pipe. He drew an automatic pistol, and it was Azrael's turn to be unimpressed. Mere bullets couldn't harm this angel of punishment, but these were no mere bullets. These were armor piercers. Now Azrael was bloodied and bowed, but he still had that sword, and it tore through Leha's face. The criminal called to his aides. Uzuzis had magazines full of the same armor-piercing rounds. Azrael shattered a window and plunged to the street below. He managed to land upon a horse in the midst of a parade. The horse trampled some newscasters and fled the scene. Azrael eventually fell off and rolled into an alley, leaving a bloody trail as he shed his armor. Azrael finally made it to his son's apartment. The young man had long, flowing blonde hair and round John Lennon glasses, which went well with his Beatles t-shirt. Jean-Paul offered to fetch the university doctor, but his father, Azrael, knew that he didn't have much time left, regardless of intervention. The father explained that he'd failed in his duty, and now his son must assume it and must not fail. Soon the Batman was on the case. He determined that the unidentified man in the armor had fallen from the penthouse apartment of Carlton Leha. Leha, of course, was a money man with no past who'd been trafficking in arms and exotic ammunition, computer-controlled rockets, laser-guided missiles, Teflon-coated bullets, the kind that can penetrate armored vests. Clearly, the falling angel and Leha were connected. Meanwhile, Jean-Paul opened the package his father had left for him earlier. Soon, men arrived to take away the body. There was money, $40,000 in various currencies, and a letter directing Jean-Paul to fly to a small airfield in Switzerland. There, he was met by a man who refused to answer any questions. He merely drove Jean-Paul through the snowy mountaintop to a small, unidentified village. 24 hours ago, he was a graduate student at Gotham University. Now, he was standing in a foreign land with no notion of why he was there. Now, he had a new teacher, Nomos, a furry little person with pointy ears and bad teeth. Nomos explained to Jean-Paul that he'd already been taught the system. Jean-Paul's father was a member of a secret organization that dated back to the 14th century. The ancient lethal ways of the Order of St. Dumas were the system, the system that created Azrael, and Azrael is what Jean-Paul would have to become. The ancient Order of St. Dumas had been implanting certain suggestions in Jean-Paul from early childhood. At one time, he could remember it only in dreams, but now it would become his reality as a bringer of death. When Nomos held the sigil of the Order of St. Dumas before Jean-Paul, his programming was unlocked. Suddenly, he was a master of the martial arts. Back in Gotham City, Batman had continued his investigation and found a sword whose hilt had the symbol of the ancient order of St. Dumas. He turned that information over to Oracle, a.k.a. Barbara Gordon, the former Batgirl, now an expert in information technology. It had been assumed that St. Dumas had stopped existing in the 15th century. The order began as part of the Knights Templar. There was some kind of internal disagreement, and a bunch of knights went off and formed their own group, named for their leader, Dumas, who nobody else has ever accused of being a saint, by the way. Anyway, they fought in the Crusades, had another falling out with their leaders cantankerous bunch then got stinking rich off pillage and loot then vanished one theory is that they split to Switzerland stashed their ill-gotten gains in banks and lived happily ever after 20 generations of Jean-Paul Valley's family had been the executioners the avenging angels of the order of Saint Dumas they dressed as Azrael and acted as Azrael in his stead thus looking like him and doing his tasks they became him Leha was the order of Saint Dumas's liaison to the material world he knew many of their secrets for instance the secret base where they were trained their Azraels Bruce Wayne and Alfred Pennyworth had followed Leha in a helicopter. They were soon caught in the blast as Lee 
he hot-fired a bazooka at Nomoz's shack. Skill and ingenuity allowed the Gothamites to survive the blast. Nomoz and Jean-Paul Valley only needed a bomb shelter. The explosion triggered an avalanche, and soon Leha was in as dire straits as anyone else on site. Leha began seeing visions of Bis, the demonic entity that the Order of St. Dumas loathed most of all. Leha now had a scar across his right eye, and a white void within its orbit that he appeared to disappear into, an abyss where he visited with Bis. Leha appeared to go mad, believing himself to have become the honored agent of Great Bis. To prove his loyalty, he dismembered his traveling companion in the snow with a buoy knife. Nomos and Jean-Paul began to leave the scene in a hovercraft. They were spied by Batman and Alfred. Batman gave chase and was viewed as a demon to Nomos. Jean-Paul donned his father's Azrael armor and confronted this demon. The battle was short. Azrael merely occupied the Batman. It was Nomos ramming the hovercraft into his back that ended the fight. Nomos triggered explosions that should have killed Batman and Alfred. However, in the previous explosion, a wire had come loose. Apparently, it was the will of a higher power that the demon should live. In a hotel room in London, Lee Ha painted a skull upon his face and began wearing intricate horned armor as a dark parallel to Azrael. Nomo soon followed, and he outfitted Jean-Paul Valley with an updated version of the Azrael armor. Now, instead of a sword, he had a gauntlet that fired a guitar knife that would project flames. Nomo recognized that Lee Ha had aligned himself with Bis, Dumas's most fierce enemy. Lee Ha had been the Order's treasurer and was the only other man alive besides Nomo's who knew the names and residences of its members. Leha was intent on slaying them all. Nomos was certain that he would fail, that Azrael would slay him instead. Leha and his Bis armor found one in a hospital and blew him in smithereens. Nomos and John Paul rushed to the scene. John Paul hadn't had time to put on his armor and ended up on the business end of Bis's rifle. However, John Paul had been carrying Azrael's armor in a bag before him, which absorbed the brunt of the blast. Bruce Wayne and Alfred Pennyworth weren't far behind Nomos. They found the unconscious John Paul, and Bruce Wayne was soon in the hospital room to confront Bis. Bis's rifle jammed, preventing him from killing Nomos. Did this have meaning? Was this the act of a higher power? Leha fled the scene, but realizing he was being followed, set a trap for Bruce Wayne. Wayne was adversely affected by some chemicals. He was seeing visions of Leha as an actual demon, a demon that beat him unconscious and carried him away in an ambulance. Alfred Pennyworth, Nomos, and John Paul Valley agreed to work together to track down Leha. Though his new armor was severely damaged, Nomos praised St. Dumas for protecting this new Azrael. Leha kept Bruce Wayne drugged and cooperative. He'd also connected the billionaire to Batman. Leha had more interest in the billions than the Batman. It was intent on finding a way to separate Wayne from his fortune. Jean-Paul Valley was a bit loose-lipped about the system. Nomos seriously considered killing Alfred Pennyworth to keep him silent. Jean-Paul defied Nomos to protect Alfred and also recognized him as a key element in tracking down Leha. After all, Pennyworth had spent a lot of time with the world's greatest Manhunter. In the Batman's absence, Pennyworth still had a lot to offer, if only by what he learned through osmosis. The group was too slow to keep Leha from claiming his next victim, but were in time to confront him at the estate of the one after that. Jean-Paul Valley donned the Azrael armor, allowed the system to take over, and had to kill his way through the estates of security to get to its master. Poor guard doggies. Poor security guards. They made the mistake of getting between Azrael and his prey, and despite their actually being on the same side, Azrael had no compunctions about slaughtering them. When Azrael finished his massacre, it was difficult to believe the gentle, shy lad that had put on that costume was doing this now. What did he become behind that mask? Azrael hesitated, trying to help Leha's last victim, but the poor devil was dying. There was anything he could do, and that hesitation cost him Leha, who managed to escape. Nomos was furious. 
Yours is a high calling, one you dishonored. You allowed your <laughs> enemy to flee while you paused by our court. Azrael is not decent. Azrael is not humane. Azrael is an instrument of righteous cruelty. Alfred was able to figure out that the next stop was going to be Lehigh's North American base in Texas, an oil refinery owned near Houston. In the Lone Star State, Lehigh taken to wearing Batman's cowl while torturing Bruce Wayne. Recognizing Lehigh's mental instability, Wayne noted that this might question Lehigh's loyalty seeing as he was now courting the demon that Wayne worshipped, the bat demon that he became. It's worth noting that we are now on the fourth issue of the miniseries. And while I've been using the name Jean-Paul Valley, to my recollection, the character actually hasn't been named throughout the story, despite being the lead character. It's at this point that Alfred actually asked the lad his name, but he didn't know. He had forgotten, forgotten who he was. For now, he was merely Azrael. Lehigh drugged, tortured, and played mind games with Bruce Wayne. All had failed. Wayne had been playing his own games. One that backfired. Lehigh decided to finally kill the man. At this point, Wayne was in the midst of doing his best to deflect Lehigh deserve his own life. In this, is succeeded long enough for Azrael to save the day. There was an explosion. Lehigh and Wayne appeared to be trapped in an inferno. Nomo's counsel that they should allow the infidels to burn. Azrael does not rescue. Azrael <laughs> avenges. Come, our work here is finished. Azrael refused. He charged into the fire. He saved Bruce Wayne's life. Lehigh, not so much, as he appeared to be consumed by the flames. You disobeyed. You disgrace your mission as an angel of vengeance. I am not an angel. I am a man. My name is Jean-Paul Valley. That was my father's name, too. The end. Batman Sword of Azrael was by Dennis O'Neill, Joe Quesada, and Kevin Nolan. This miniseries isn't quite Quesada at his peak, but it is a fantastic combination of chromium era excess and actual attention to anatomy, perspective, lighting, storytelling, and other niceties of proper comic books. There's one shot of Lehigh and his bis armor holding up seemingly large science fiction rifle that's right out of the Rob Liefeld playbook, but the image is constructed so well that you hardly feel guilty for enjoying it. Additional legitimacy is lent by one of the great underpraised masters of the art form, Kevin Nolan, whose inking technique is in full effect while maintaining a perfect symbiotic relationship with Quesada's pen a rare partnership in place of Nolan's usual complete overwhelming of the page. It's a testament to how well Quesada's work stands up that he only needed to be touched up by Nolan, and the coloring is exceptional for the period. Too bad the action-heavy plot is fairly boilerplate off-brand Bond, and fails to fully realize the new characters in such a way that you'd want to follow their adventures without the benefit of those pretty pictures. DC Comics used to have a free advertising circular called Direct Currents that was essentially their monthly solicitation copy made available to potential readers outside the pricier distributor catalogs, but in color on slick paper with some additional editorial content to gen up sales. I would have had access to the full-size catalogs, but it wasn't especially invested in the DC Universe yet, so a postage stamp-sized black-and-white image amidst a field of text would have had trouble standing out. When I think of my first sighting of Azrael, I only recall noticing him in direct currents, with the flashy art and bright colors. I think DC was teasing what a big deal the character would end up being, but hype was so plentiful at the time it was easy to give it a pass especially since DC books rarely became super hot and accessible items. True enough, if I had wanted to investigate Azrael, DC had a convenient trade paperback collection close enough to his purpose being made manifest during the Nightfall epic that I could have easily availed myself. However, I never knew what to make of Jean-Paul Valley, and I contentedly waited 24 years to read the full Sword of Azrael miniseries. I have to confess I did so for free, and if I hadn't been so galled by the lack of identification offered for Jean-Paul Valley in the Batman annual, I might have gone another quarter century without bothering. Also, I didn't feel like reading ahead across 
lost ballistics numerous relative to new blood, but objectively spotty later appearances. So I used Azrael as an excuse to get out of that homework. I read the initial arc of Nightfall, a lengthy year and a half or so worth of interconnecting Batman titles, in which Gotham was overrun by rogues released from Arkham Asylum. Catching up with all those costume convicts wore down the Batman family to the point where Bruce Wayne could receive a debilitating injury and require a temporary replacement in the role of the Dark Knight. So Dick Grayson was called back from the Titans in his half-measure role of Nightwing to assume his rightful position as Prodigal Son and Batman's successor. After the other guy made a murderous mess of everything for months in continuity. Now this was the 1990s after all, so we'd throw out all logic and have Bruce hand the keys of the Batmobile to a homicidal Manchurian vigilante he's known for all of five minutes. Jean-Paul Valley wore the traditional Batman costume for as long as it took to reach an anniversary issue with a die-cut foil-enhanced cover, then got an intentionally mediocre chromium edge overworking by Kelly Jones that involved extensive body armor, laser sights, and a clawed gauntlet with wrist-launching bat shuriken. I tapped out with Batman number 500 until the closing arc of the exasperating pseudo-trilogy, Night's End. It probably goes without saying that this as-bat, as he was soon dubbed with all due snickering, proved to be too extreme and ultra-violent for the iconic role. It was in fact the entire point of his existence. Longtime Batman writer and editor Dennis O'Neill wanted to answer the question of why Batman shouldn't give in to the excesses of the deconstructionist movement that would push the Cape Crusader into irredeemable psycho territory. This was also perhaps an act of penance, since the psychodramas O'Neill initiated with Batman in the Bronze Age had informed that very movement, as was necessary in writing a story solely about making a muddy moral point with full awareness of its controversies benefiting sales. Jean-Paul Valley was deemed unworthy by a partially restored Bruce Wayne, defeated and given a boutique spinoff, allowing O'Neill to noodle with a half-assed reworking of his superior question material. Azrael, Agent of the Bat, was like an existential question in comics form. If you publish a book that isn't very interesting, starring a character no one particularly cares about, but it ties in regularly with Batman titles, can it survive for half a decade as flotsam? Indeed, it could. In spite of having read dozens of comics featuring Azrael, I can't describe his personality. He's a crazy guy programmed by a cult to be their ultimate killer, but he keeps breaking down and fighting his conditioning to serve a purer good. That's the premise. The second Batgirl, Cassandra Kane, had a very similar one. Her book lasted longer than Azrael's with much, much less of a promotional push, and a no-profile creative team because she was more than just a device. Her series is being collected today, with fans still clamoring for her to take part in Gotham Adventures and cosplaying as her. Azrael? I hear they're using him on the Fox Gotham TV show, but not with as much excitement as folks had over Wild Dog appearing on the CW's Arrow. Personally, I think Sword of Azrael is too good-looking a volume not to keep in print and prop up in modern comics, which means figuring out a way to appreciate Jean-Paul Valley and the still-appealing costume he wore. The lame look of Azrael still resonates with 90s readers, but I don't think anyone roots for him as a hero. If it were up to me, I'd have Jean-Paul succumb to the system and the machinations of the Order of St. Dumas. Maybe set up a three-way conflict between the Court of Owls and Rachel Ghoul. Probably have Azrael kill off a few peripheral characters to re-establish him as a threat. Given their ties to the Knights Templar, perhaps have Azrael act as the central figure in a parallel to the Batman family with a more theological theme, and more likely a more Old Testament view of corporal punishment. Maybe go with a crimson color scheme the way Batman's tends toward blue and black, involving guys like Anarchy and, hey, Ballistic. Ooh! Red Hood would be an obvious choice to either go undercover or legitimately be turned by the Order. Would it be too on the nose to work in Nightwing and Brother Blood in there? Anyway, I can't speak for you, but just since I started rambling, I've had more ideas for Azrael than in the previous couple of decades, possibly because it's probably been that long since I gave the concept any real thought at all. Andy, I have an amazing idea. Let's do a podcast. We've been talking about doing this for years. That sounds great! So, what should we talk about? Something no one else is talking about. Batman. <sighs> Mike, there are hundreds of Batman shows out there. You used to do one. True. Well, maybe we could do an index show. Are you insane? We both already host those. True again. 
Okay, maybe we could talk about Batman stories no one else does. Like the Jerry Conway run. Ooh, ooh, yeah, yeah, we could discuss his entire run and then go into the Duke Mensch run. But we won't be tied down to that. We need to be free to talk about other Batman stories from that era as well. And we could call it The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. Great! The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. New episodes drop on the 14th and 28th of every month. The show and the website, www.overlookeddarknight.com, launch in May of 2017. From the Fortress of Bailitude Podcasting Network. If you enjoy the music from this episode, you should legally download Kill City by Iggy Pop, Army Ants by Stone Temple Pilots, Between Angels and Insects by Papa Roach, Descending Angel by The Misfits, The Becoming by Nine Inch Nails, The Red by Chevelle, and Holy Diver by Pat Boone. We received direct currents across social media from the 108th Sage, Akram Ahmed, Ali Bats, Ange, Arthur Meister, Bat at Shapirak, Between the Pages, Bill Bear, Cash Flag aka Al, Chris Sheehan, Chris Thompson, Coffee and Comics, Comics in the Golden Age, Comic Reflections, Darren and Ruth Sutherland, Ed Moore Jr. at Indie Comics Fan, Marvel Bronze Age, Miskatonic and Teal Productions, Eric Mannix, Inigo Montoya, FKA Jason, Gaston Pujol, Glenn Walker, Jeffrey Brown, Joe Crawford, Justice First Dawn, Keith G. Baker, King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun Podcast, Longbox Crusade, Matches Baloney, Namor Submariner Podcast, Nethead, One Man Band, Raven X Fields, Reggie Reggie, Retroist, Richard Field, Ryan Daly, Siskoid, Stella at Batgirl Oracle, Style Icon, Visual Dishpondi, Unearthly Visions, Wiccan, Willie Yarbrough, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. Kyle Binning noted, thanks for playing my promo, dude. Longbox Crusade added, great episode. Really enjoying listening to this podcast and the audio drama you do. Thanks for playing our promo. I received an email from Sean Merrick writing, Hello, just wanted to say that I dig your shows and that it's dope that you are doing a podcast about fun, random stuff like Bloodlines. I thought your recent Hellstorm podcast was particularly great. I'm a huge Defenders fan, and Damien has always intrigued me. Keep hustling with the podcast. If you have a minute, check out my comic book show, Worst Collection Ever, that I do with my wife, Jen. We riff on our lousy collection of books from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We've done some shows on stuff like Hellstorm and Bloodlines Anima, if you're looking for somewhere to jump on. Keep up the fine work. Thanks, Sean Merrick. Hmm. I guess now I should break with podcasting convention and go ahead and run a promo for Worst Collection Ever. Yeah, I'll do it next episode. Batman provides some really nice low-hanging fruit when it comes to podcast promos, and I'm going to reach a little bit more next episode. By the way, I did listen to Worst Collection Ever, two episodes, uh, one on The Adventures of Ford Fairlane. I also own at least one issue of that comic and saw the movie theatrically, as well as the episode on Just League Task Force where they said kind things about Martian Manhunter, a character dear to my heart. It's a lot of fun. It's uh, very much more in the vein of the Marvel Superheroes podcasts and other group-rolled spine shows. They curse a whole lot and talk about stuff that you really wouldn't want to have overheard in your workplace now let's go for a deeper dive into comments or as i like to call it siskoid quit his job to write a book and instead he's leaving me a bunch of comments on my dumb podcast he writes on the argus and flash episode finally i'm up to catching up on bloodlines even re listen to the steel episode one by mistake but enjoyed it again so that's not an issue argus was definitely one of the better new bloods and one they were pushing harder with his own mini and everything his backstory was interesting too surprises your dislike of flash though i understand your problems i thought us geeky workaholics all liked super speed is a power from a wishful fulfillment angle if nothing else 
truth to tell, I'm kind of known for moving at high speeds on my day job. So maybe I just don't see that as an aspirational thing. Anyhow, moving on, Anima attacks new Titans, says Gord writes. Despite the fact that I was buying almost everything put out by DC back then, I did not read Anima. Probably because I'd long given up on Titans, but what issues I have seen failed to get a rise out of me later. It was an interesting idea, but far too psycho-mystical to fit the metahuman label. On the Vixen is a Lady Fox, he wrote, a Vixen fan today, dating back to Justice League Detroit, then Suicide Squad, then JLU and her return to prominence in the 2000s. I love the power set generally, but I missed all those earlier comics, the ones with the powder blue costume, which I do think is an eyesore, and those ears are ridiculous. I like these forays into less well-known DC heroes away from the New Bloods, especially when they tap into what we affectionately call Frank's agenda, and feature female and or non-white diversity characters. Thank you for all your work. And it's funny how Siskoid says we call Frank's agenda, meaning that he started that and all of my friends picked up on it. And yeah, DC Bloodlines was always intended to expand beyond the New Bloods, and especially to focus on more obscure heroes and definitely it's it's fairly obvious at this point uh, also to ha- shine a light on non-white non-male heroes as well it would have probably been more obvious if i had managed to get a decent number of episodes out before going on lengthy hiatuses which is probably a good time for me to mention that we're going to go on another lengthy hiatus in a couple of episodes i've got one more random obscuro for next issue and then we're going to do the just league europe annual which was the last under the completely vague subheading of outbreak among the Bloodlines annuals. I'm finding that podcasting has really been eating up too much of my life and I would prefer to just put out one show per week of whatever it is I happen to be doing. Of late, I've been shooting for and really not quite achieving having one week with two new shows and then another week with only one new show. And I might be able to pull that off, but as Bloodlines has expanded beyond just covering one character in one annual, it takes a little too much time for that to work very well for me. And up until the end of Wonder Woman's anniversary year, I definitely want to keep putting out an episode of the Diana Prince Wonder Woman podcast every other week and maybe if Bloodlines takes a break I can actually accomplish that instead of this thing where I get you know one out about every three weeks or so and if I can get the Rollspine shows set up so that I can devote just one show one week I think each of the shows will be better for it and I suspect that when Bloodlines returns it'll probably just be a monthly show mostly because I'm too blasted picky about stuff I spend a lot of time figuring out what songs are going to be in each episode I keep doing this thing where I'm like oh I'll do an annual and I don't know an entire miniseries an overview of a whole other character besides and then I have to go and do the research for that and you know do write-ups on it when I actually do the scripts point being is if you're planning on leaving any iTunes reviews you probably want to start working on that now because I'm going to try to knock out as many of the comments as possible on the episode after next since it'll be a while before we get to any more comments and also when the show comes back I will continue to look at these characters that we've set up in the first season and change of Bloodlines plus add a whole bunch of new characters so I'm going to have to be pretty committed to getting this show done right because the focus is going to expand. That means more songs get picked out, more characters to do deep dives on. But back to Siskoid as he talks about Myriad. Why do I remember the reign of the Superman so well and not each of their Bloodlines annuals? No memory of Myriad, except very vaguely that she was a zombie, as America will someday. Someday. We're living in that America now. Who's Myriad? And then on to the origin of Captain Comet. I've probably never read a Captain Comet story I've loved, but you're a great champion for the character. The mutant angst, long before X-Men, amused me greatly. Of Night Lady wrote, Comics come alive at the DC Bloodlines podcast. Just going on Green Lantern. Green Lantern is everything wrong with the baby boomer generation is brilliant, man. Blew my freaking mind. 
I do count John Stewart as my favorite lantern, and I think I fell for him in Mosaic as my GL reading was pretty spotty before Emerald Dawn. You echo a lot of my thoughts on his ups, downs, snubs, and needless changes. On Green Fury, he wrote, While I'm a big fan of comics theater endeavors, this is coming from the fellow who does the Lonely Hearts Romance Comics podcast, each episode of which features a dramatization of an entire comic book story. But as he was saying, he loves comic theater endeavors, and this one made great use of Roldspine's favorite Latina in the lead role. I still miss the Frank commentary. I think Green Flame deserves a follow-up with your thoughts on the character. And again, pull the curtain back a little bit. The intention was to actually cover the Green Flame portion of Beatrice DaCosta's career. I did do some reading on that. I did write up a commentary on the character, as well as adapting a bunch of material that I left on Ryan Daly's Secret Origins podcast back in the day. But the episode was just going to be too long. It took a lot of effort to put together that particular drama. So I just figured, leave it alone, let it stand as it was. Something fun, something where I'm not being terribly critical, and then we'll deal with me laying the smackdown on the green flame later on. Finally, Siskoid wrote of the Dr. Mist episode, this is one of those major players you never see, you're right. Part Black Panther, part Dr. Fate, he could at least have scored his own Vertigo series back in the day. Man, I'd read the heck out of a Young Animal Global Guardian series, come to think of it, or write one. I wonder if I have proper cred yet. Hey man, I'll vouch for you. This program is a not-for-profit fan production. Any copyrighted materials within are believed covered under fair use, with no infringement intended against the rights holder. You may leave your comments on the DC Bloodlines blog, the Rolled Spine podcast WordPress page, at Twitter with either Commander Blanks or Rolled Spine, or on the Facebook page. And of course, within the context of social media only, spill the blood! Yay. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou.